Last night when I uh, finished preaching, I sat down right there and a little boy, must have been about six, just scooted six chairs across and said, man, you had to speak for a really long time. <laughs> so taking that as a subtle hint, I said, was it a little too long? He says, yeah, a little too long. I was starting to get sleepy. Do you think next time you could just talk a little shorter? (laughs) Out of the mouths of babes. This is a great week in the life of our church. It's actually one of the few holidays that just hasn't gotten trashed by commercialism. And uh, a great time to gather and feast together with friends and with family. And I hope part of your tradition is just coming here on Wednesday night. I have to say, growing up at my home church... The Thanksgiving Eve service was the highlight service for me. We didn't have a baptism service, which I'm really looking forward to. But what I remember about that service was just different people standing up and just giving a word of thanks to God. And so I hope that you'll join us uh, Wednesday night. That'll just be a great way to enter into this holiday season of Thanksgiving. Well, we're into the epistles today as we're kind of coming to the final lap here of our series, Cover to Cover. I'm going to tell you the story of Alexander the Great, this uh, great military conqueror, leader of the Greek Empire. The story is told of how one day in the midst of his military campaigns, he meets a retreating soldier who's actually running from the front lines. And on his stallion, he meets him and he says, soldier, what is your name? And the soldier sheepishly replied, Alexander. And Alexander said to him, Soldier, change your name or change your conduct. And when I think of that story, I I think that it has everything to do with the New Testament and the letters, these epistles that we're going to be looking at this morning. Because in the epistles, we're reminded that we bear Christ's name. We're Christians. And that has everything to do with our conduct, how we live. And so today we're going to be just thinking about our identity, where is it, and our conduct. How's it going, our walk with Christ? Well, let's pray as we begin. Lord, to that end, we pray that your word would be used by your spirit to just speak to us and get in the nooks and crannies of the really deep recesses that you want to talk to right now. We do want to open our minds and our hearts to you. And even as we do it, to worship you and say, we love you. We want to do life by your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, when you come to the epistles, you realize that most of the New Testament, those 27 books, 22 of the 27 are epistles. This this word epistle just means it's a letter. It's a letter written to a group of people in a church or an individual And it's written to address questions that they had in their faith and their journey with Christ. It it dealt with some problems that needed to be addressed. And so these letters were written to help these people understand who they are in Christ 
and how that makes a difference in all of life. And so you think of those first 13 letters are written by Paul. The line after 2 Thessalonians just makes the break of letters to churches and then letters to individuals like Timothy, his protege, he's the pastor at the t- in Ephesus at the church there, Titus, one of his traveling companions, Philemon, a good friend. He's run into his slave Onesimus and he's writing a letter about that. And then there's many other Letters written by different men. You've got John, who's given us four of these New Testament letters. The first three being 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then the book of Revelation is written by the, the uh, disciple John, the beloved disciple. Peter's written a couple, and then James and Jude and Hebrews are, are one-offs. We're not really sure who the writer of Hebrews is, but James is Jesus' half-brother, and Jude is most likely the half-brother of James and also of Jesus as well. So these are the epistles. And when you come to the epistles, it's good to understand their connection to the whole of Scripture. The epistles' connection in the New Testament is similar to the wisdom literature of the Old. Remember those books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Those books talked about how do you take the law of God, summarized by loving God with all your heart, and how do you walk that into everyday life? What does it look like? Well, wisdom literature gives us the skill for living out the law in day-to-day life. Well, that's what the epistles do with the gospel in the New Testament. So these letters are applying the gospel to all of life, 24-7, putting it in a shoe leather and saying, this is how it makes a difference in our life. The epistles then remind us, too, that you don't just walk into this relationship with Christ through the doors of believing in Christ, faith, and repentance, turning away from all the things that had our attention and the things that dishonored Christ. It's not just going through the doors and saying, okay, I move on from that. I don't have to worry about that anymore. I've repented and I've believed, right? No, the epistles remind us that the Christian walk is this walk of ongoing trusting in Christ, ongoing turning away from anything and everything that doesn't honor Christ as King and Lord. And these epistles then tie directly to the book of Acts, the history book. Because it's in the book of Acts that we read about Paul going out on the missionary journeys and planting these churches. And so you've got letters to Rome, and that's where the, that's where the book of Acts ends up. Paul's there in house arrest in Rome. He visits Ephesus, as we're going to look at this morning. And that brings about the letter to the Ephesians. And so it's so much of it, not all the letters, but so many of the letters and the people addressed in the letters are found right there in the book of Acts. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to use the book of Ephesians as kind of a a case study, a representative epistle to show us the connection back to Acts and show us what the epistles are doing as we ground our identity in Christ and understand what it means to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. So open your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 18. And we'll look at verse 19 through 21. And what we're doing here in Acts um, is we're looking at the background to the letter. So if you forgot your Bible, just grab one in the rack in front of you and you can find that on page 786. So we read this in Acts 19. Excuse me, Acts 18, verse 19. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila 
he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it's God's will. So just kind of keep your nose and eyes there in, in the book of Acts. So that closes out his second missionary journey. In, at the end of chapter 18, he's gone back to Antioch and he branches out from Antioch. He's starting now his third missionary journey. In chapter 19, verse 1, we find out that he travels this interior road and makes his way to Ephesus. In verse 8 of chapter 19, he goes into the synagogue, as was his custom. He's spreading the good news of Jesus Christ being the Messiah to the Jews first. And we read that in verse 9, some of them became obstinate. They, they, they didn't want the message. They, they didn't receive it. They rejected it. They were obstinate to it. And so what Paul does is says, okay, if you Jews won't receive the message of Messiah, well, then I'm going to go and bring this good news to the Gentiles. And he sets up shop in the hall of Tyrannus on the other side of town where he teaches daily for over two years. And you keep reading on in the text and you get to about verse 23. You find out there's a big riot that ends up breaking out at the very end of Paul's ministry there in Ephesus. Demetrius, the silversmith, the maker of these uh, idols to the, the goddess Artemis, the goddess of the town of Ephesus, Paul's teaching is changing people's lives and he thinks his income is going to be threatened. And so he gets all the other silversmiths together and goes against Paul rising up this huge riot in the town and it ends up chasing him out of town. So his third journey continues. We move on to chapter 20. And as he's making his way back to Jerusalem, he's in Miletus, chapter 20, verse 17. And he's not very far from Ephesus. And so his heart, after three years of ministry there at Ephesus, his heart is connected there and attached there. And he longs to be with them again. So he sends for the leaders of the church, the elders. And they meet him. And here's how he greets them and hear how he talks about his ministry there in Ephesus. So look at verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with, whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. Although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I want you to know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. 
be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock, even from your own number. Men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So we have this tender exchange and tears and embraces, reviewing his ministry and then warning him about the dangers that are all around them. And as we kind of move from the history of this letter of Ephesians and go into the letter, we want to just stop there and say, hey, Paul just said something important to these leaders. And I wonder if there's a point of application for us. It's this whole matter of, is your guard up? Are are you vulnerable from just getting knocked off your feet? He, He talks about the dangers from within, but when you read through the epistles, you realize there's all kinds of things that could knock us off our feet. There's, first of all, the world. That Paul says in Romans chapter 12, the world has this squeezing power that would squeeze us into its own shape, mold us after its thinking and its ways. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, Paul says. Have your guard up. Boy, we're to love this world that Christ died for. But our love for the world should never be such that we want to be like the world. We want the world to be like Jesus. Have your guard up against the squeezing power of the world to shape us into its mold. Peter would then say in 1 Peter 2, one of his letters, he said, here's something else you got to have your guard up to. The sinful desires of our own hearts. But wouldn't it have been great that when Christ saved us, he gave us like this titanium heart that no longer could ever mess up. Well, that's what I look forward to just as much as anything when it comes to heaven. A time in my life where I'll never sin again. But the hearts that we have right now have the spirit of Christ in us, but we still have this propensity where we don't always do what we want to do and what Christ wants us to do. And so Peter says, hey, have your guard up against the own sinful desires in my own heart that will wage war against my soul. Have your guard up to that. Peter would say in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Have your guard up against this roaring lion, the enemy of our souls, who is seeking someone to take out, to devour. Got to have your guard up. But you remember what Paul said specifically to the Ephesian elders. He said, you got to have your guard up to the wolves. Who are the wolves? He said, men from your own number. Who is this number? The elders, the spiritual leaders of the church, they're going to come in and they're going to distort the truth so as to lead disciples after them. They're going to take you away from Christ and the gospel. In fact, you start reading the epistles, you realize, wow, this is a recurrent theme. They're always going up against these false teachers. And here's how you just need to understand the false teachers in the New Testament and the false teachers today. They're people that would come and say to us, Jesus is not enough. You need Jesus plus something more. So in Acts chapter 15, we meet these people, the false teachers, they're called Judaizers because their teaching was this. Jesus isn't enough. You need to be, accept Jesus and you need to be a Jew. And to be a Jew, you need to be circumcised. It's Jesus plus. 
Now, we're probably not going to meet a whole lot of people that come to us and look at us and say, hey, hey, you need to be circumcised. But it's this whole mentality of you need to do something more. It's like the good works kind of thing that happens so often in our day. Jesus plus the good work of circumcision. Well, there are others. They said Jesus is enough. They were called the Gnostics. Gnosticism had to do with the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. These were people that said, Jesus isn't enough. You need this higher knowledge. And when you have the higher knowledge, well, now you're getting to where you need to be spiritually. So Paul writes about this higher knowledge in 1 Timothy chapter 6. John, in his letters, 1 John specifically, goes right up against these Gnostics who deny the material world as being good and created by God. Say, that's evil. It's only the things that are of the Spirit that are good. So they reject the incarnation of Christ. They reject his resurrection. And how does John start his letter? The things that we have handled with our own hands. He goes right back to the material world to say, no, these things are good. And that Gnostic heresy is just that. It's false. And you got the others who are kind of like the libertines, who say, hey, look, we're under grace now, so it doesn't matter how you live because God forgives it. And the more we sin, actually, the more grace abounds. So just live and let live, and you're just free to do whatever you want to do. False teaching. And Paul would say to us, hey, church, Door Creek, is your guard up? Not just what's outside, but what's inside. You know what that means? That means... You listen to what I say carefully. And you listen to make sure it jives with this right here. Right here. Because what Paul's saying is, it can come right from the teachers and leaders of the church. It's a huge issue in the New Testament. And it's a huge issue today. Friends, there are false teachers all around Our culture, do you know who they are? And do you know what's not right about what they're saying? We've got to have our guard up because we live life here on a battleground. Well, there's some background for us. So let's get into the epistle. And when you get in the epistle, you realize that, hey, right away, turn over to Ephesians chapter 1, right away, Paul's going to make it clear that Jesus is enough. And so what does he say in verse 3? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with what? Some? Most? No. Every. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. And so if we have Christ, we have everything. That's what he's saying. When you get in this letter then, Paul does an interesting thing. And the epistles continue to model this. He first of all says... The first thing we need to know is who we are in Christ. And then now that we got that clear, all right, let's walk out that identity in life, in real shoe leather, in all of our relationships. Who we are in Christ is chapters 1 through 3. How we walk this out in life for Christ, chapters 4 through 6. So look at chapter 1. He starts talking about who we are. Look at verses 4 through 10, page 827. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Now, that's who we are. We're going to go back to that and flesh it out. But I want you to go back to 10, verse 10. Look, look at verse 10, the, the second half of the verse. That second half of verse 10 is probably, I think, the best summary of the entire Bible from the Bible. Now, you may remember me saying early on in cover to cover, if I were to put the story of the Bible in one sentence, it went like this. God redeeming a people to himself through Christ for his glory. It was all about bringing a people back to himself, that relationship, and it's being done through Christ for God's glory. Well, you know, the more I've been thinking about this study and going through it, I'm thinking that spotlight was a little too focused on just the people. And I think verse 10 helps us that it's not just the people. He is reconciling all things, not only his people, but all of creation to himself through Christ. That's what he's talking about. The times when it'll all come and be fulfilled under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. Well, he goes on, look at chapter 2, to talk about who we were before we were made alive in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you follow the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And and I have to say, verses 8 through 10 are probably three of the most important verses in all of the New Testament. So let's just read those out loud together. Verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So who are we before Christ? Who are you if you don't have a relationship with Christ? Spiritually, flatline. You're dead. There, there is no impulse in you to pursue God and there is no ability for you to live a life that is pleasing to God whereby he would say, you've merited my favor. We're dead. And not only are we dead, we're in a heap of trouble. We are children who are under the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? It's his fierce judgment against those who would commit treason against the king, God himself, and against his son. 
We're rebels, and rebels are under his wrath. But, verse 4 goes on to say, because of God's great love, his mercy, and his grace, we can be made alive. And so when you go back to chapter 1, you realize that the epistles are causing us time and time again to root our identity in Christ. And just look at the things that chapter 1 tells us again, starting in verse 4, that we're chosen before the world began. That we're predestined in love to be adopted into his family. We're his children. We're redeemed and forgiven at the price of his death for us. We've been marked with the seal of his spirit. We belong to him. We are in Christ, and we are his workmanship. That's the word masterpiece. We are alive. We're spiritually living, experiencing the abundant life, and we are alive to God and his purposes. So let's remind ourselves together as we read these highlighted words. This is who we are in Christ. We're chosen, predestined. Say it with me. Adopted, redeemed, forgiven, marked his masterpiece alive. That's who we are. That's who we are by the grace of God. So it begs the question, begs the question, where do you find your identity? Where do you find it? It raises a question. How do you know? How do you know right now what your identity is kind of grounded and being built upon? What are the foundations to your identity? How do you know? Well, let's talk about where's your identity. Let me give you some options here. I think for some of us, our identity is grounded on our occupation, our work, what we do. Sometimes it's in our kids and what they're doing. For others, it's our special abilities, our, our looks, our position, possessions, our reputation. These are the kinds of things that we will often base our identity upon. Well, but how do I know? How do I know that's what it's on? Well, what do you think about? What do you dream about? What are you working hard for? What, what happens when this thing is taken away? A lot of times you know what your identity is built on when all of a sudden that's pulled out from underneath you. So it's like the person who loses their job and go, whoa, I didn't realize this, but my identity was so much in what I did that now that I don't do what I do, I, I, I don't know who I am anymore because my identity was in my work. That's especially a problem for us guys. So when we meet someone, one of the first questions we want to ask is, well, what do you do? What do you do? That's, that's kind of who we are. Now, here, here's one for, for moms. All of a sudden, the kids are gone. The, the, the nest is empty. And you go, wow, my identity has been as a mom for these kids. And, and they don't need me to be a mom anymore in the ways that they did. They're gone. Well, who am I now? What am I doing? All right, here's one for you students. You know, you, you go through junior high and, you're in high school, and you might say, you know, I'm kind of a big fish here. I'm at the top academically. I'm at the top in, in athletics. I'm at the top in the arts, in drama, in music. And then all of a sudden you graduate, and you find out that was a, that was a really small little pond. 
it was really small. You know, you know the people who are laughing right now, kids? It's the people who have done this. They've gone from the little pond. They've gone to the big pool and realized all of a sudden, hey, I'm not a big fish in a small pond. I'm just like minnow in this ocean. I mean, I thought I was a stud athlete. Now I'm finding out there are guys that didn't even play varsity sport that are better than me. And I started on the team. Sometimes when that identity is taken away from us, we can see it clearly. The epistles are coming to us and saying, where do you find your identity? It's got to be in Christ. Now, I say that to you as your pastor, and I've been thinking about it all week, and I know that. I know that truth. My identity must be found in Christ. But I think there's a huge difference between knowing it here and living it out in everyday life. And I'm still learning that. What does that mean? That's a great conversation over lunch this afternoon. What does it mean to have our identity rooted in Christ? Well, when we take up the book of Ephesians in the new year, we're going to better understand that, I am sure. But there's room to grow. And so once the identity is established in these opening chapters, we're ready to, to move it out into shoe leather. And so chapter 4, verse 1, go look at it. Chapter 4, verse 1 moves from who we are in Christ to how we walk that out. And it's seen in the word live in the NIV, but the Greek word there is literally the word walk. And that's a better translation, to walk. So whenever we use the word live here in the NIV, it's really the word walk. So in chapter 4, verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live, to walk a life worthy of the calling you've received. Turn over to 417. We see it again as a prisoner for the, uh, verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer walk, live as the Gentiles do. 5-2. And live a life of love. Walk a life of love. Chapter 5, verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk, live as children of light. And then one more. Verse 15 of chapter 5. Be very careful then how you walk how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. And so he starts walking out the gospel. And in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, he's walking out the gospel in our relationships in the family of God. And then in chapter 5, the second half, he starts walking it out and says, this is what it means to be a Christian in the family, your family, husbands and wives. This is what the gospel looks like in your marriage. Then in chapter 6, he moves out and he says, not only in your marriage, this is what it looks like in your family. Children and parents. Then he takes it out of the family relationship. He said, let's go to work with this. And he goes in chapter 6 and he starts talking about servants and masters. Slaves and masters. He's talking about how the gospel works out in a real shoe leather in our jobs. And then finally, from verse 10 of chapter 6 on to the end, he talks about how it works out in the world. This hostile world where there's an enemy and we better have the battle gear on. The armor of God. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing throughout this. And so, you think about this metaphor of walking, and it is a beautiful metaphor. So I just want you to hear some of the things that I've been thinking about as I've been musing and just meditating on the metaphor of walking. Here's the first thing that comes to my mind. Walking describes relationship and companionship. The reason I say that biblically is because the first time walking is used is to describe God walking in the garden with whom? Adam and Eve. 
Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 5, everybody's dying in Genesis chapter 5, this genealogy, except there's one guy who doesn't die. His name is Enoch, and he's transported into heaven. He never dies. And what do we know about Enoch? He, remember, he walked with God. He's got this relationship with God. So walking, this metaphor reminds us about companionship, walking together with Christ through all of life. It reminds us, too, that walking talks about a path. That path is Christ's path. It's, it's the way of God's word, and it, it speaks of obedience. So we meet Noah in chapter 6 of Genesis, verse 9. And he's a blameless man in his generation who walks with God. When we think about walking, we think about obedience. When we think about walking, we think about, hey, it's a choice. Jesus goes up to the fishermen, and they're employed, and they've got work to do. And he says, hey, guys, drop your nets. Come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And they had a choice, as did Levi, as he was sitting there collecting a lot of taxes and getting rich at the tax collector's booth. Hey, Levi, follow me. He had a choice. Was he going to walk with Christ or not? There's a choice there. When I think about walking, I think about spiritual exercise. I think about it's healthy. It's a good thing to do. Here's a funny story from our marriage. When we were first married, Lori said to me, well, let me tell you where we lived. We lived in a town called Highwood. What you need to know about Highwood is it was most famous for this fact. More bars per capita in little Highwood, Illinois, than any other, any other city in all of America. I mean, even all the cities in Wisconsin. Can you believe that? More bars per cab. It's hard to believe. It was in Illinois, and we live there. So one night, we're just married. Lori says to me, hey, hon, let's go for a walk. Okay, so word association. When she said, let's go for a walk, all of a sudden, my mind goes, dot, 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 back to when I was a kid, Sunday afternoon, and my parents said, we're going to take our family walk. And it wasn't like, do you want to come? It's, we're going to take the family walk. And I hated the family walk on Sunday afternoon. And so when Lori said, let's go for a walk, I'm thinking about Sunday afternoon. I'm thinking, no, I don't really want to go for a walk. And she said, hey, it's okay. I'll just go by myself. Now, it's 9 o'clock at night, and she's walking the streets of Highwood. Not on your life is she going to walk out there by herself. So I'm going with her. Okay, we're walking. So we start walking, and we got in this habit. And what we say to young couples today is this. One of the best habits we've been in for our marriage as a couple has been walking together. Because it's in those walks that we just talk. And we talk about anything. We pray. We pray for our kids. We pray for this church. It's healthy. Not just physically. It's healthy for our relationship. It's healthy. This spiritual exercise of letting God talk to you through his word. And you talking back to him in prayer. These are things that we're thinking about, about this metaphor. Here's another thing. Walking slow. I mean, it is the slowest way to get from A to B, isn't it? It's slow. And it reminds us that the walk with Christ is a journey. It's a marathon. It's slow. It's not a sprint. There's a process going on where God is slowly making us more like his son. These are some musings about the metaphor of walking. Now, look at the slides as we jump through some, quick, some scriptures real quickly about this idea of walking. So Leviticus 26, God says, I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. There's that relationship. Psalm 1, 
Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. That wrong path. Psalm 119. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Micah 6. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. 2 Corinthians 5. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Galatians 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Colossians 2. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So, the text is asking us, how's your walk? Not just where's your identity, but how is your walk? Do you have a relationship? Is Christ your friend? The Bible is written so that you and I could know that, that we could experience friendship with Christ through all of life. Do you have that relationship? Are you exercising spiritually in the word and in prayer? And I think an important thing the epistles do is this. Are you walking it alone? This whole thing called the Christian life. Are you going at it alone? If you took a picture of yourself right now and your walk with Christ, is it just you and Christ? Because that's not the picture of the New Testament. It's of the body and Christ. We walk it together not alone. And that's the rich imagery that we have in the New Testament, the epistles. We're the body of Christ, joined together by him, different parts fitted together to do his work until he comes. So let's tie it up with these implications. First, we've already said it. The Christian life is lived in community. We see that throughout the epistles. Second, the church is fragile. I mean, we read through the epistles and the history. We find out that two of the great spiritual leaders, Barnabas and Paul, have this huge falling out over John Mark. And they separate ways, never to serve together again. Yodi and Syntyche and Philippians, they can't agree on the color of the carpet for the new church building. And they're at odds with each other. You, you, you hear people say, boy, I wish we were more like the first century church. Oh, yeah? Like the church in Corinth? where the guy is sleeping with his father's wife and nobody's doing anything about it, where they're getting drunk while they're celebrating the Lord's Supper, where they're taking each other to court and suing each other. The church is fragile, fragile. The epistles remind us of that. Not only are they fragile, the church needs teaching. It needs God's word And the teaching of God's word is always practical. Here's one of the dangers that I hear today. People saying, theology, I don't need theology. We don't need theology. Theology is boring and theology is completely irrelevant to my life. That, my friends, is a misunderstanding of God's word. Chapters 1 through 3 is rich theology of who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us. It's giving us our anthropology, our understanding of man. It's giving us our understanding of how one is saved by God's grace through faith. It's giving our understanding of what we're to be doing as his workmanship, doing the good works that he prepared in advance for us to do, 2.10. It has everything to do with chapters 4 through 6. In fact, we wouldn't understand 4 through 6 until we got 1 through 3. It is practical. And don't let anybody dupe you into thinking theology is irrelevant. I don't need it. We need to study God's word. We need doctrine. Fifth, the gospel's for everyone. 
It's in the epistles that the mystery of God is revealed. That is that God's purposes, as he hints in the Old Testament and fully reveals in the New, is it's for everyone. It's not just for these chosen people. It's for all nations. Six, those who follow Christ will suffer. Here's a, here's a classic example of why theology is important. There is a theology of suffering in the New Testament. Here's how Peter puts it in 1 Peter 4. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trials you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Paul's in prison when he's writing Ephesians, when he's writing Philippians, when he's writing Colossians. Suffering is part of the experience of following Christ. Don't be surprised. Here's an important one. We live between the first and second comings of Christ, just like the people back in Ephesus. We live 2,000 years after him. But their world and our world is the same in this sense. We live in the same history of biblical history between the cross and Christ's second coming. That means we have parts of the kingdom that we're experiencing. We have the down payment of his spirit. So we know a little bit what it's like to be and live in God's presence because we have the spirit of Christ in us. But we don't have it in full measure. We don't experience it fully now. But we will. And so that reminds us, eight, that this is not heaven. So don't try and make it heaven. And don't treat it like heaven. We are passing through. We're traveling not on passports. We've got visas. We're just here for a time. Our home is heaven. And because that's home ninth, we've got to be ready. We've got to be ready for his return. And the epistles talk a lot about his return. It's to encourage the believers when they're suffering that, hey, it's not going to be forever. He's coming. He's going to make things right. And when the epistles teach on, on his second coming, it doesn't say this. Okay, guys, get your charts out. See if you can figure out when it's going to be. It doesn't do that. It says, that's not for you to know the times and the dates. But here's what you need to know, that you should be encouraged by this teaching that the life that you experience now in this fallen world where you know things are not right in your own life and in this world, that they're going to be made right. You be encouraged and live a holy life. Live that life worthy of the calling that is yours as a follower of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, grow us in our understanding of what it means to be in Christ. May that continually continue to be the foundation of how we build our identity individually and corporately here as your church, Door Creek. That we might be people and a church that continues to walk in that manner that's worthy of the name of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.